want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, and um, we'll be there in just a second. If you're new to Sagemont or you're visiting us, uh, visiting us this week, or maybe you visited last week and you're showing up again this week, one of the things that we do is we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We're in the book of 1 Peter right now. 1 Peter is an incredibly applicable book for us in the 21st century because what Peter was doing, he was writing to first century Christians and he was talking to them about how to engage in a world that was growing increasingly hostile to Christianity. And so he spent the, be, you know, the better part of two verses here in 1 Peter talking about all the things that God has done in us and God's done for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 11 of chapter 2, he turns a corner, and then he starts getting really specific about how you and I are to live and how we're to engage in this world that is growing increasingly hostile to Christianity. And two weeks ago, um, in verse 11, he talked about how as believers we're to deal with sin. And let's read this together, 1 Peter 2.11. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, and the translation I used when I originally preached that, it was aliens and strangers, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Okay? Now he says, look, because of all that God's done in us, we're to say no to sin, we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh, and, and he talks about the, because of the internal impact that sin has in us. It says that sin wages war on your soul. But then, what he's going to do in the next verse, and I want you to hear this, tune in for, for just a second. What he's going to do in verse 12, he's going to talk about how the reality is that we're Satan, to say no to sin and we're to walk in holiness because of the external impact our holiness has on other people. Our holiness just isn't a thing that we live in and not something we experience but our holiness is meant to be visible to the world around us. And he's going to talk about the impact our holiness has on a lost world that does not know the gospel. And so let's read this together, 1 Peter 2.12, okay? He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let me read that one more time. Keep your, and again, he's just said, abstain from sin because sin's waging war on your soul. And then he turns to the outside world. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, save my, here's what Peter just told us. What Peter just told us is exactly how you and I are supposed to act, exactly how you and I are to respond as we live in a world that hates us and is growing increasingly hostile to our faith in Jesus Christ, okay? Now, I say that. You're like, Matt, what are you talking about? Well, I say that because up until about 12 or 13 years ago, it was not difficult at all to be a Christian in the United States. Um, really, up about a decade ago, 12, 13 years, to be a Christian in the United States really didn't cost you anything could be an advantage, but that is changing, and it's changing pretty rapidly. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. When I was growing up in the 80s 
and 90s, um, I distinctly remember evolution being about a paragraph or two in my science book. And um, distinctly remember my science teacher putting forth the Genesis creation narrative, you know, that God created the world in six days as a completely acceptable form of belief. But now in every academic institution in our country, if for you to believe that the world was created by God in six days is laughed off as an antiquated fairy tale. And you're going to be ridiculed for believing it. Think about the biblical views of, of gender, same-sex attraction, homosexual marriage. Earlier generations of Christians in our country were never questioned if they held those traditional biblical beliefs because those were socially acceptable positions for generations. But in today's society, a Christ follower that holds to the traditional view of marriage um, and, and gender and sexuality, at best, at best, you're going to be spoken evil of against. But at worst, and we're seeing this happen, Christians are being sued. Um, Christians are being canceled. Um, and in many cases, they're losing their job because they hold to the traditional biblical view of those things. It was not that long ago that the overwhelming majority of people in this country held the belief that Christ was the only way to God. Okay? But now, if you stand up in the public square and you make the statement that Jesus Christ is Lord and He's the only way to the Father, then you're going to be called names. You're going to be called hateful. You're going to be accused of being bigoted. I could go on and on here, but we really are the first generation of Christians in this country's history where this verse that I just read is not going to be theory for us. But we're going to be forced to decide whether or not we want to live it out, whether or not we believe that the Word of God and what it says is the right way to do it, or we're going to do it just the way that the rest of the world does it. Okay, so let's read this again together, and we'll break it down and be done. 1 Peter 2.12. Going to look at one verse today. Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of, of visitation. Now in that one verse, Peter makes three distinct points. We're going to look at those three and we'll be done. Here's the first point he just made. <clears throat> that our holiness will be confrontational to a lost world. That's point number one. Our holiness will be confrontational to a lost world. Here's number two. Our holiness should be visible to a lost world. And then the third thing he just told us was that our holiness will be evangelistic to a lost world. Okay, so look at that first point. That our holiness will be confrontational to a world that doesn't know the Lord. Let's read it together. 1 Peter 2.12 he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, real quick, when he says the Gentiles there, that's just a generic term that means all non-believers. And so he's saying, keep your conduct among non-believers honorable. And watch what he says. He says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter starts off and he says, hey, here's the first thing you need to remember, that you've got to keep your conduct around people that are non-believers honorable. And then he says, why we're to do that? He says, the reason we do that is so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they'll see your good deeds. Now I want you to notice what Peter does not say. 
He says, he doesn't say keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that if they speak against you as evildoers, just keep your conduct honorable so that when. His point is that being spoken evil against us because of our faith in Christ is a foregone conclusion. It's not a matter of if it's going to happen. Church, it's a matter of when it's going to happen. And that shouldn't shock us because that's exactly what Jesus Christ said would happen. Don't turn there, but in, in Matthew chapter 10, 22, and Jesus says, and you will be hated. It's a pretty straightforward phrase, isn't it? You will be hated. Right? He does not say you might be hated. He doesn't say that, hey, if things go wrong, it's possible that you'll be hated. He says, you will be hated. Why did he just say that we're going to be hated? Look at it again, Matthew 10, 22. He says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. He said the world is going to hate you because of him. The world's going to hate you because of his name. The world's going to hate you because you're associated with Jesus. Now, why in the world is the world, all men are going to hate us because we're associated with Jesus, okay? I don't have a ton of time to go deep into this, so I'm just going to jump in, give you, give you my thoughts here. Here's the reason I think people are going to hate us and do hate us because we're associated with the person of Jesus. Church, Romans 1 tells us, you can go read it yourself, but Romans 1 tells us that deep down inside, every man, woman, and child, whether or not they would admit it, believes that there's a God. Romans 1 tells us that, that we see creation, it's obvious that God exists, and whether or not we admit it, everyone deep down inside believes that God exists. And if that's true, which I think it is, I believe it is because the Word of God says it, and I've seen it, then why don't people follow it? If they believe He exists, that there is a God, then why don't they submit their lives to Him? Okay, well, Jesus actually told us why. In John 3, 19, check this out. Jesus again is speaking. He said, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. And so the claim of the scripture again is that every man, woman, child believes deep down inside that there's a God, but they don't want to submit to him and give their lives to him because it's, Jesus said they love the darkness. It means they love their sin. And because they love their sin, they don't want to follow Jesus, okay? Now, with that in mind, look at 2 Corinthians 2.15. Paul talks about this, and it's, it's a fascinating verse. In, in 2 Corinthians 2.15, Paul says, For we, those are believers, for we are the aroma of Christ. It's an interesting phrase there. We're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one... A fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Now here's what Peter, or excuse me, Paul just said. Paul just says that you are the aroma of Christ. If you're a believer, you're the aroma of Christ. You smell like Jesus. You look like Jesus. You act like Jesus. You put off a Jesus aroma. You are the aroma of Christ. And so if you're the aroma of Christ, when you get around people that God is in the process of saving, you smell like Jesus to them, and that smells like life. Smells like a warm apple pie on a cool summer morning to people who are being saved, right? But 
If you're the aroma of Christ and you get around these people that are actively rebelling against God and love their darkness, then when you get around them and they smell that aroma of Christ, it doesn't smell like apple pie to them, it smells like death. And you remind them of their rebellion against the God they know exists and they're going to hate you for it. Now, I thought about this for years. I'm like, why is it that atheists hate Christians? They're not ambivalent about Christians. They're not neutral, right? If God doesn't exist, then God's kind of like Santa Claus. Just something we made up. When's the last time you got violently angry because somebody believed in Santa Claus? You've never done it. Because you know Santa Claus? I mean, you know, right? That's the thing. The point is this. They know he exists. And because they refuse to follow him and you're the aroma of Christ, you smell like death, they're going to hate you for it. Sagemont, over and over again, the scripture promises us that we're going to be hated by all men on account of his name. And so here's, here's some things I want you to hear today. This is what I want you to hear today. We need to stop being surprised when we're hated because of the name of Christ. We need to stop being shocked. I get around so many believers, guys, that they're seeing kind of the persecution that's coming and they're flipping out. They're, they're flipping out. But here's the thing. Jesus promised us that it would happen. Did y'all think he was joking? I think the reason it's so hard for this generation is because there are a lot of us here that are old enough to remember what it was like before things started getting really crazy and really difficult. And now it's getting kind of crazy and it's getting kind of difficult. So we're flipping out. But Jesus, over and over, Paul, Peter, they're like, hey, 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 chill out. It's coming. Be ready for it. Okay? Now here's, here's the other thing. So just so stop being surprised. Here's the other thing. Stop taking it personally. I see so many Christians that are completely offended by the fact that we're being persecuted. But the thing that's important to remember is that they don't hate you. The scripture says they hate the Jesus in you. Which is awesome. Somebody hates me because they say, see Jesus in me, then that's the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. Which is exactly what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.12. Just in a couple of chapters later, he's talking about this very thing and he tells us exactly what our response should be when persecution comes. In 1 Peter 4.12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery, fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, but rejoice. Everybody say that with me. But rejoice. 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 Insofar as you share the sufferings of Christ, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The scripture just said, hey, when persecution comes, you don't flip out, you don't get angry. You rejoice because that's proof that the glory of God is resting on your life. Back at my previous church in Austin, I told you it's, it's in Austin and I've shared this before, but if you, you don't know anything about Austin, it's this little red dot, I mean, excuse me, little blue dot in a big red sea of Texas. It's a little piece of San Francisco right in the middle of Texas. And I live there. And anyway, it's, it's, it's crazy. 
and so, but here's the thing. I, like, I preached this book even though I was there. We didn't water it down one bit. One time I was preaching through the scripture and we got to a part where it addressed the biblical view of sexuality and I preached it. And here's the thing, guys. I preached it very pastorally. It was very kind. And I didn't come up with my own stuff. I just preached what the Word of God said. That's all I did. And it got out. And the next week, we show up and people are protesting our church. And they've got all these signs calling us all these names. Hateful and bigoted. And a lot of my staff were flipping out. They're like, what are we going to do? And get a police and run them off? And I'm like, no! It's the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life! We're finally being persecuted for the name of Jesus! Let's all party! Because all that's doing is proving that the glory of God is resting on our church. And as a matter of fact, you're the aroma of Christ. You're the aroma of Christ. If you're a person... Or, or you're a church that never experiences the persecution that comes with being the aroma of Christ, you probably don't smell like Jesus enough. So rejoice. It's proof that the glory of God is upon you. And I told him that, and I was like, man, go bring him some water. So we brought him water, and we're super nice to him. We're the aroma of Christ. We're the aroma of Jesus. So the first thing we need to remember is our holiness will always be confrontational to a lost world. Now, the next thing Peter shows us is what our response should be when that persecution, those insults come. Here's number two. Our holiness should be visible to a lost world. Our holiness should be visible to a lost world. Let me read it. First Peter 2.12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among lost people, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Okay? So Peter tells us again, he goes, look, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you're going to be insulted because of the name of Jesus. When that happens, step one, you rejoice. And then he says, keep your conduct honorable, which we'll talk about um, that in a second. And he says, the reason we're keeping our conduct honorable is so that the lost world can see your holiness. It can be visible. And that's going to turn them to God. And I'll talk about that in a minute too. But the point is this, is that our holiness is not just an internal thing, but our holiness ought to be visible to other people. Doesn't mean we're like the Pharisees saying, hey, we're better than everybody else. Just like, man, if you're saved, people are going to be able to tell the difference. I came across a quote this week when I was reading. There's a quote from this Puritan preacher from the 1800s, and I love this quote, it it applied, that's why I'm going to use it today, he said this, he said, you can say you're born again, but if you're born again, your horse will see the difference. Now what does that mean? Well, this is back before they had cars, and so people rode around on horses all the time. And so your horse was the animal that you interacted with every day, and his point is you can say you're saved all day long, you can say you're a believer, you say you're born again, born again, but if you're really born again, you're really saved, this animal that's hanging out with you all the time, they're going to see it. Your horse is going to see that you're more patient. Your horse is going to see that you're less irritable. Your horse is going to see that you're less prone to outburst of anger. Well, 
we don't ride horses. And so fill in the blank with something more practical. That if you're born again, that's right, your spouse is going to be able to tell the difference. You're going to be different. That if you're born again, your children, they're going to be able to tell the difference that you're a parent that's saved, that's born again. Doesn't mean you'll never mess up. It means you repent. If you're born again, it means that your coworkers, it means your boss, they're going to be able to see the difference. And listen, guys, here's the whole point of what Peter's saying at the end of this verse here. His whole point is that if you are a believer, if you're saved, then the world is also going to see a difference. The lost world will. They're going to see a difference. So let's look quickly here at what the lost world that doesn't know Christ is going to see in us when they come with persecution and slander and all that stuff. Look at verse 12 one more time. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they'll see your good deeds. And so what Peter says, he says, look, this is how you're supposed to act when persecution comes. He goes, make sure that you keep your conduct honorable. Now that word honorable is a really descriptive word in the Greek. It comes from the Greek word kalen, K-A-L-E-N. And it's translated six different ways into English in the New Testament. Same word, translated honorable, it's translated lovely, it's translated excellent, it's translated noble, it's translated into winsome and beautiful. So Peter says persecution is coming, but when it comes, make sure your conduct, make sure your response is honorable, it's lovely, it's excellent, it's noble, it's winsome, and it's beautiful, okay? His point is this, and I want you to hear this. His point is that slander is coming, but your life should always contradict their slander. They're going to speak evil against you, but the way that you live and the way that you respond should always contradict what they're saying about you. That if they insult you and you do what the world does and you insult them back, then all you're doing is validating everything they ever said about you. But when they insult you, you respond in an in a honorable, lovely, excellent, noble, winsome, and beautiful way. It undermines everything the culture says about you. I'll give you an example. There was something going on back in the early days of Christianity in the first century. Some of the ways that Christians were slandered and spoken evil of against. The world thought they were cannibals. Now, why? don't shout it out, but why did the world think that early Christians were cannibals? Well, it was the Lord's Supper. And so, you know, they took the bread, which represents Christ's body, and they drank the cup, which represents Christ's blood, and it was a symbol of his body and his blood, to remember him. Well, the word got out. These crazy people called Christians, they're eating human flesh. They're drinking human blood. They're cannibals. And so the world literally thought that they were monsters. The culture thought they were monsters. And so they're walking around, you're like, Christians, man, they're cannibals. They're monsters. But then those people would actually meet a Christian. They'd be talking to somebody and the Christian would let them know they're a Christian. And the guy's like, whoa, hold up, buddy. Don't eat me now. We're, we're... And the Christian's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, man, I heard you are cannibals. I heard you eat flesh and drink human blood. And it's like, the Christian wouldn't bow up. The Christian wouldn't get defensive, wouldn't make fun of the person. They would respond honorably. They would respond in a beautiful, kind, honorable way. And then that person would walk away from that encounter and they would think to themselves, that person wasn't a monster. 
that person was one of the kindest, most honorable people I've ever met. And it completely undermined everything the culture was saying about them. Sagemont, if there's ever been a time where we need to commit to living this out as believers, it's right now. Because make no mistake, guys, listen. Believers are being slandered. We're being spoken evil against. And for many cases, it's for all the right reasons. It's for all the right reasons. We stand against abortion as Christians. And we always will. We stand for the biblical definition of marriage and gender and sexuality, and we always will. We stand for the biblical view of gender. We stand for religious freedom, and we always will. Listen, but a huge part of why Christians are being slandered is how they are standing for those things. No amen? Huge reason we're being slandered It's not that we're standing for those things, but how we're standing for those things. Yes, we're being spoken of evil because of our following Christ. But a lot of the reason Christians are being spoken evil against is because Christians, just like the world, when they're standing for those issues, are being mean, sinful jerks. Just don't turn there. Just listen. Eight verses later, he's still addressing this issue. 1 Peter 2.20. Watch what Peter says. Peter said, for what credit is it? If when you sin and you're beaten for it, when you endure, he goes, but when you do good and suffer for it, you're endured. That's a gracious thing in the sight of God. All right, y'all, y'all, y'all see what he's saying there? He's saying these Christians were being just like the world. They were being sinful. They were being mean. They were being arrogant. They were being jerks. And they were being persecuted for that. They were suffering for that. And then the Christian is like, praise God, I'm being, I'm suffering for Jesus. And Peter's like, no, you're not. You're not suffering for Jesus. You're suffering because you're being a jerk. We got to make sure we're not doing that. Standing against abortion is right. It is right. And I will never stop doing that. But how we do it matters. No, 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 don't clap yet. How we do it matters. Standing at a, at a Planned Parenthood and screaming down some 17-year-old girl in the worst moment of her life is not honorable. It's not honorable. There's a better way. Standing for religious freedom is right. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not getting it, saying this to, to get a clap, I'm just telling you. They walk in here someday and say, Matt, you preach this book, you're going to jail. Well, I guess I'm going to jail. I'm starting a prison ministry. There's a... Standing for religious freedom is absolutely right. But getting on social media and attacking the opposing political party and making fun of the opposing political party in the exact same way that they make fun and attack you is not honorable. This book says there's a better way. And this is it. 1 Peter 2.12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day of visitation, which brings us to Peter's last point here. Number one, our holiness will be confrontational to a lost world. Number two, our holiness should be visible to a lost world. And then number three, our holiness will be evangelistic to a lost world. Did you catch it? Verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among lost people honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they see the way that you respond. They see your good deeds. And here's what's going to happen. They're going to glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation is a fancy term for the day of judgment. That's when everything's said and done. You and I are standing around the throne of God. And, and that's the day of visitation. And Peter's saying, here, here's what's happening here. They're going to insult you. They're going to speak evil against you. And then what you do is in that moment, you, you, you rejoice, but then you respond in this honorable, kind way. You respond different than the world. You respond more loving than the world. You respond more kindly than the world. And then that person that's not a believer says when they see that honorable way that you respond, what the Scripture is saying is that in and of itself has the power to turn their heart to God which is fascinating. And, and when I read that and realized what that was saying, something hit me this week that I've never thought about before. And I was thinking about the night before Jesus was crucified. The night before Jesus was crucified, he, he got the disciples in the upper room. And he's gathered together. He does the Lord's Supper. And then he washed their feet. And then he, you know, kind of outs Judas and Judas leaves. And now that he's got his true disciples in a room, he looks at them and he says, all right, boys, here's the deal. The world's going to hate you. Like they, they hated me and they're going to hate you in return. And then he says this to him. He says, hey, I'm about to send you out into that world that hates you as my witnesses. You're going to go out in the world that hates you and you're going to tell everybody you can about me. You're going to be my witnesses. And then, right after that, he starts to pray. John 15, 16, 17, high priestly prayer. He starts to pray. And he, and he prayed for the, the men in the room. He's like, Father, protect them. He, he talks about the Holy Spirit, that he's going to send him a helper. And then Jesus does something that's so beautiful and so amazing. He starts to pray for you and me, too. Did you know that? The night before the cross, Jesus prayed for you and me. He said, Lord, not only do I pray for these men, but I pray for the ones that will come to know me through their word. Who's that? That's you. That's me. He prayed for you. For you. On the night before the cross. And you know what Jesus prayed? On the night before the cross. He said, Father, I'm sending them out into a world that hates them to be my witnesses. And he starts praying. And he did not pray, Father, make them clever evangelists. He didn't pray, Father, I pray that as I send them out into a world that hates them, that you would make them amazing culture warriors. He didn't pray, Father, as I send them out as witnesses of me in a world that hates them, that you would make them amazing debaters. When he prayed for you, he said, Father, I'm sending them out into a world that hates them as my witnesses. And he said, Father, I pray that you would make them holy. He said, Father, make them holy. Why? Why? Why did he pray that you and I would be holy? And I think the answer is this, is because Jesus knew 
that holiness would be critical to our witness. Jesus knew that darkness would not have the power to drive out darkness, that only light would have the power to overcome darkness. And so he's praying for us right before the cross. And he says, God, would you make them holy? So that when these people that hate us, when they persecute us, when they come at us, and we respond in a holy way, we respond in a kind, noble, beautiful way, that that one moment would be so radically different that it had the power to turn them to the Lord on the day of visitation. And I want to end today, I want to end this sermon by telling you a story, a really cool story, about how I've seen this lived out before my very eyes. I'm going to be a little vague because you'll understand why I'm being a little vague. But two years ago, I got a call from a representative from the United States government. And there was a country in the Middle East that was on the United States list of countries that um, were not doing very well in religious freedoms. The U.S. got a list of countries that are, that are persecuting Christians and persecuting Jews. And this Middle Eastern country was on the list, and it got a new president. And the new president, he's not a believer, he was Muslim, but he wanted to turn uh, the country around. He wanted ec economics to grow because more people uh, go out and shop and buy stuff if you're not afraid of getting blown up. And so he wanted to have religious freedom so that Christians and Jews would go out and buy stuff and the economy would flourish. And so he called the U.S. government and he asked if we could do a four-day retreat. Nobody knew about it. So a four-day retreat. We could come and talk about how to help this country with religious freedom. So he invited um, three American pastors he invited one Christian pastor, three American Christian pastors. He invited one Christian pastor from that country. This is important. He was the, one of the on, only Christian pastors in that whole country. And he had been persecuted horribly by, by Islam in that country. So three Christian pastors from America, one Christian pastor from that country. And he invited three American um, Jewish rabbis. For some reason, there weren't any from that country. And then he invited three... Muslim imams from that country, which like a, is a Muslim pastor, and he invited three imams from America. And I was one of the pastors that got invited to come be a part of this. And so I spent four days with this really crazy mix of imams and pastors from the United States in this country. So this is when it got real crazy. So we were walking on the first day. I was hanging out with the Christian pastor that was from that country. And again, he had experienced horrible persecution for being one of the only Christian pastors there. It turns out that on two different occasions, his church, his Christian church, had been burned down. We walk into the room together, and as we walk in, he looks up and he stops dead in his tracks. He just freezes. The three Muslim imams from that country were sitting down together across the room. And I found out later that two of those three imams from that country were two of the people that had been accused of burning his church down. Why don't you put yourself in his shoes? He walks in. He sees those guys. He knows who they are. They look up. They know who he is. He stops dead in his tracks. He was angry. And he was scared. 
as was I, if I'm being totally honest with you. But I watched this guy over the course of four days absolutely show these three moms the love of Jesus Christ over and over and over again. He was so honorable to them. He was kind to them. I watched them as he served them. He just, he went and sat at their table. He sat at their table and through the entire course of the four days, he just served them. I saw him on multiple occasions walk over there and when they were done eating, he would pick up their plate for them and go throw it away, which is a big deal. Men don't do that in that culture. I saw him bring them water on multiple occasions. He'd bring out and fill their water or he'd bring them water bottles. He asked them questions about their family. He wanted to see pictures of their kids. He just spent three days, showing four days, showing them the love of Christ. And on the last day, the leader of the whole group said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have one representative from all three of the religious groups. We're going to have one of them pray. Muslim, Jewish guy, American or Christian pastor. And I was uncomfortable. I'd never done that before. I didn't know, like, am I doing some kind of heresy or something? We're all praying together. And, and so I came to the American leader, representative guy, and I said, man, I'm a little uncomfortable praying like this, but here's what he said. He said, Matt, the thing you need to remember is that our God is the one true God. He said, I've seen the Holy Spirit move in power in these times. And he said, just go for it. And I said, okay. Imams prayed. And then it came time for one of the Christians to pray. And sure enough, the Christian from that country stood up and he prayed. He prayed for these Imams. He prayed for God to bless them. He prayed that God would bless their families. He prayed that God would protect them. He prayed that God would give them peace and would show them his love. And then he said, amen. And what happened next blew my mind. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. As soon as he said, amen, those three imams stood up and they walked over straight to him. And they were talking in their language, so I didn't understand what they were saying, but I found out later what they said. Here's what they said. They walked over there, and they said, we've watched the way that you've lived for the last four days, and we've watched the way that you've treated us. They said, God has shown us that you are an honorable man. And from now on, you have our friendship, and you have our protection. And from this moment forward, no one will ever harm you, your family, or your church ever again and they walked out the door. Pretty cool. I'd like to tell you that they fell down on the floor and gave their life to Jesus, but they didn't yet anyway. But I wonder if one day, many years from now, when those three imams are lying on their deathbed, I wonder if they remember that moment. The moment when the guy that they burned down his church, not once but twice, but the guy that they burned down his church, he showed them love and kindness and honor. And in that moment, they remember that. They remember what they did, and it might turn their heart to the one true God in the last moments of their life. That's why Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they'd see your good deeds.
and glorify God on the day of visitation. The word of God says it can happen. Sagemont, I've seen it happen. So when persecution comes, let it happen through you. Let's pray. Father, I just com- I feel compelled right now that for this particular group, I pray, Lord, that more than asking us to be able to live this out when persecution comes, God, I pray for this group that we would be the aroma of Christ. That these young people, God, that they would know there's a better way than the world. There's a more fulfilling way. There's, God, there's a, there's a more life-giving way, and it's the way of Jesus. Father, let us be the aroma of Christ. And so for many, we would be the aroma of life. But God, when those who we are the aroma of death to persecute us, that we would respond honorably. So that on the day of visitation, they might turn to you. Lord Jesus, we can only do this by your power and by your grace. So we ask that you would do that today in Jesus' name. Amen.